This show is brought to you by Whatever You Say Productions, starting conversations since 2018. Welcome back, or welcome and welcome back to Microscope, episode number six. So we want to say that this got put out later than our episodes normally come out, and that can definitely be blamed on both Kevin and I. Absolutely. It's, it was finals week for us, and yeah. I, haven't, I don't know why I took classes this semester, but you I did. did what did you take? Uh, I took a mathematical populations class. Shit, son. And How then I took a Spanish. to, uh, to microbes? So, did you have to do a lot of that like work yourself? To... No, it, um, so a lot of it just looks at like how populations change and different factors that play into that. So, I mean, that's essentially just the microbial community. Yeah. Yeah. So it was easy, easy like that. But then I also had a Spanish final. Yeah. Hablo español muy mal. You're ready. You're ready to go to the field. Send me to Peru. Oh. Amazonian expedition. That's another thing I got to tell you about. Oh. I'm not, not going to nice. say it online or oh. over the air, but. Oh, oh it's, it's, it's cooking? There's something in the pipeline? Well. You can't announce yet? Or there's like nothing cooking in the pipeline? Pipeline? Oh, we'll shit. see. We'll yeah. see. So, episode six of Microscope. Kevin and I have also been talking a lot about sort of changing the dynamics and trying to like broaden what we talk about because we think sometimes we talk about very controversial topics and we get angry. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and that comes out. And we don't want to be angry. We want to be happy. Yeah. Not all the time. Not all the time. <laughs> and we just want to like communicate just like cool science to everyone. And so today's episode sort of is similar to last week's ep- or two weeks ago's episode where Kevin picked a study that he was really interested in, and I picked a study that I was really interested yeah. in. And so let's start breaking that down. I think, Kevin, do you want to start or do you want me to start? Yeah, I'll, I'll kick it off here because right. it's something very near and dear to my heart, which is food. We talk about food here a lot. We talk about food almost every episode. Yeah, damn. <laughs> it's, uh, there's a common trend there. Definitely getting a little hungry right now I've been thinking about this and furthermore one of my favorite types of food is meat meat of all kinds give me that meat yeah man I can't live give me that deep which is really (laughs) (laughs) which is really um, troublesome sometimes because a it's expensive we've talked about the issues with uh, sustainability and the Issues with trying to go vegetarian or vegan, uh, excluding meat from your diet. And one of the big, I want to say, breakthroughs or um, current trends in food science over the past decade has been trying to circumvent all of those issues by synthesizing artificial meat products. So on board. I am snapping over here in the corner. This is really this is really hot right now cuz imagine that. Imagine you could have a big juicy medium rare steak, <laughs> bloody as hell, <laughs> perfectly seasoned. And no animal died in the making of no that meat. No animal died and Far fewer resources were utilized in the culture of this steak, which grew in a test tube or ah uh, culture culture was that a, was yeah. that a pun? Oh yes, it was. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't even realize it. Yeah. So basically, long story short, uh, Mike and I are microbiologists, so we're very familiar with cell culture. 
Uh, and when we say cell culture, we mean growing cells from some organism in the laboratory, in a sense, that's basically all it means. When you're Kevin grows Pseudomonas. I've been working with Pseudomonas a little bit. That's a bacterium. And Mike cultivates literally anything that I've found in the soil of the Amazon. Whatever is in the <laughs> Amazon soil. Yeah. Uh, there's, there's a so lot many. of things. I did my final tally. I have over 172 unique organisms. Dang. It's pretty, like, I didn't do any of it, but, like. Yeah, you did. I don't know. You, love, you, I you instructed people on how to do it. <laughs> I did a little bit. But it's dope. Okay, sorry. Not to take away your. <laughs> yeah. So going along those lines, yeah, we have kind of, we have somewhat of an easier time than I would say um, uh, cancer researchers and people who study disease in human cells because those cells are a pain in the ass to grow in a test tube because they would rather be part of a complete human being or a complete rabbit or a complete mouse or whatever kind of animal those cells came from. Uh, remember we They're just about, incomplete without their partners. Exactly. Remember oh, we God, talked about sad. HeLa cells last time? That would be an example of a human cell line. Those are human cells growing in culture. So what that has to do with creating lab-grown meat is basically the challenge with that is to basically have the best of both worlds. Have the ideal conditions for these cells to grow in culture, but also have the final product or the tissue, uh, which is basically a collection of cells, um, the tissue that comes out of that cell culture be more or less similar to the uh, tissue that would come out of an actual animal growing and developing, like a calf growing up to be a cow. There will be certain changes to its muscle, uh, muscular, skeletal system that will be manifest in the meat that is produced from that cow. So that's why uh, we have veal, and veal has a different taste, texture. I don't actually know this. I've never been able to afford it, but that's what people tell me um, to like, <laughs> adult meat. Yeah. So those are some of the issues that um, scientists working on lab-grown meat are grappling with to this day. And Mike found this sweet paper. Oh, thanks. Brings us. <laughs> I didn't do all the legwork. Yeah, you did. Brings us. <laughs> Let's, let's make that clear for this one right now. And I spend more time looking up other stuff that's not my own research. Than... Yeah, that's my problem with this. It's like, oh, fuck, they don't want to hear about... They don't want to hear about pseudomonas. <laughs> so our lab group has a Slack group. And, you know, everybody else in my lab is posting, you know, very methane-centric papers. And I'm just like... Oh, here's this new microbiome study came out and look at this paper. It has amazing figures. Even though it's like, I don't know, in psychology or something. I'm like, you should look at papers not in your own field. That's just my own opinion. So I try to find cool papers like this. Yeah, for lab meeting and other things. Because it is quite cathartic to read about something that's a little outside of your wheelhouse. And definitely totally cool. Like this paper, authored by Luke A. McQueen, among others. It was published in Nature, Science, and Food, and it's entitled Muscle, Muscle, Muscle Tissue Engineering in Fibrous Gelatin, Implication for Meat Analogs. So Implications. Dun-dun-dun. So <laughs> let's break down that title a little bit. Muscle Tissue Engineering. So like I was just talking about with growing 
human cells or growing mouse cells in culture. We are talking about growing muscle cells from animals that we normally eat, like cows and rabbits in this study in particular. So what they are doing there is growing the muscle cells from cows and rabbits in a petri dish and then figuring out ways to make the mass or the tissue that is generated from that as similar to the real thing as possible. And the way they explore to do that in this paper is by providing those cells with a fibrous gelatin matrix to use as a scaffold. Let's unpack that Interesting. one. Interesting. Yeah. Huh. So gelatin, we've heard about this before. What else do you like to do? Cooking, Mike, what do you use gelatin for in the... I know you're quite the chef. Uh, <laughs> what do I use gelatin for? Uh, so I actually did just make this like chocolate jelly thing. Oh, yeah. It's basically just like jello or gelatin and like cocoa powder and like honey. Yeah. It was pretty good. I mean, I probably would never make it again. Okay. But yeah. No, so it essentially like... Wait, let me... If you want to turn something liquid into a solid, that's a that's right. essentially what gelatin Absolutely, can be. Absolutely, yeah. So in this case, when we are growing these muscle cells in the petri dish, they're just all wishy-washy, squirming past one another. Um, if we give them this fibrous gelatin matrix, they are able to attach onto that and actually take the shape of that gelatinous matrix which is actually kind of similar to how they do it in the real world in actual muscle tissue. There is a, a fibrous matrix. The cells will grow on and around that matrix and actually create the three-dimensional structure uh, that we see manifested in a slice of beef or what have you. So the way they went about this was super cool. They used this technique called immersion rotary jet spinning which is so wild you gotta wait say that one more time immersion rotary jet spinning immersion rotary jet spinning so basically from my understanding of it they have a cylinder that is rotating at a very high speed okay and they have basically a gun that's shooting out this gelatin polymer and wrapping it around that cylinder and what that creates when you look at it under the microscope at super fine detail. So is this kind of like, okay, wait, yeah, a cotton candy machine? Oh but shit! Like, at the molecular level? That's fucking exactly what it is. Okay, That's all right, all right, one hundred percent what it is. I could never have thought. So you, so look at next time you're at the fair and you get cotton candy, take a look at it. You see, it's not just one mass of sugar, but these extremely fine strands and if you were to take a magnifying glass and look at it you'd see all this intricate architecture basically that's what you're seeing here with the immersion rotary jet spinning they are building a matrix of these tiny sinews of gelatin polymer around this um, cylinder and within the cracks and crevices of all those tiny strands of gelatin they are going to inoculate these cow and rabbit muscle cells and then grow them on there. What that will do at the end of the day is what you end up with is you have this gelatinous matrix and then all of the void spaces in between the little strands will be inhabited by these muscle cells. You know, that is something that I think a lot of 
science is moving towards is these like 3D structures for growing cells in. Like, you know, the fake meat, fake meat, fake meat, fake meat, ugh. (laughs) (laughs) It's just one example, but I know in a lot of labs that are trying to understand different diseases, they, Mm -hmm. they... are trying to make this 3D model that they can study because they know that cells do not behave the same on a flat dish as they do exactly. in this 3D structure. Yeah. Looking yeah. at things in 2D under a microscope, not always going to be telling the full story. And yeah, this is definitely an example of, of that. So even beyond lab-grown meat, artificial meat, these technologies have implications for curing disease and understanding how... Um, the body works developmentally in actual in the actual 3D circumstances, which it actually exists in the real world, not just 2D cross sections of each one. And what I found the very coolest about this paper, and we'll put a few of these figures out in the for the artwork to go along with this episode, is in Figure Seven. They actually showed the uh, microscope images, both. Um, stain uh, just staining microscope which is basically you apply a stain to your sample it colors it to make different structures easier to see and then further down on the scale is scanning electron microscopy this is such a pretty picture yeah these, this is such these a pretty pictures picture are beautiful. yeah and so basically scanning electron microscopy is able to visualize extremely fine details at the scale of nanometers basically um, so you can see very fine detail of structures in that. And basically what this figure is showing is a comparison between this lab-grown meat and this gelatin matrix opposed with natural rabbit muscle, bacon, and ground beef. And you can, anyone off the street could look at this and say, like, I probably couldn't tell the difference, especially between the rabbit at least muscle this close. tissues yeah. 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 and the ground beef. It's virtually identical in structure. And we already know it's identical in composition because obviously the rabbit muscle cells and the cow muscle cells are the same cells that are being used to inoculate the lab-grown meat. So we know at the cellular level, at the chemical level, they're the same. But now with this gelatinous matrix for a scaffold, we can have it at the tissue level be nearly identical, which is really cool. Did you see figure number five? Figure five. That's what I'm looking at. Oh, yeah. That is pretty. Yeah, yeah. It's like, so, okay, just what figure five is, they grew the cells, right, on this scaffold, and then they stained the cells so that anybody can see. Because most of this stuff is clear to the naked eye. Mm -hmm. So if you add these, what we call fluorophores, to the cells, certain parts of the cells will glow. And it just, you can see this structure of the fibril that the cells are growing on, and then you can see all the individual cells on top of it. I'm gonna, we'll post this as well, because this is... Yeah, this paper is really good pictures, which is a pretty rare thing. Yeah. Most papers have shit pictures. Because it also costs money to publish in color. Oh, yeah. Oh, we could talk about that, Shannon. Another episode. (laughs) (laughs) We can go on about that. Again, staying positive. (laughs) Staying positive. Oh, Kevin, it's almost like that was a perfect 
leeway into the study I want to talk about. <laughs> so I think, you know, as you guys listen to this, and I know most of the people who, who know me and don't know Kevin, you know, would think Kevin is exactly like me. But we're actually very different, I would say. So most people would describe me as being an extrovert. And I think most people would describe you as an introvert. Yeah. Neither of those are bad. I'm not saying either of those are bad. But I think that comes across a lot, especially in the realm of science, where there's more of a majority of introverts than there are extroverts. And... You know, I hear people all the time like, oh, I'm an introvert. I just want to like go home on like a Saturday night or whatever. And I'm just like, I'm so on board with that if it's during the semester. (laughs) (laughs) But if it's the summer, I'm going to break. Which explains the last two weekends. Yeah, pretty much. (laughs) Semester's over and Mike has not stopped. But getting off topic. So I I really want to like tease apart sort of like. Does being an extrovert or does being an introvert make you more happy or is there no difference? And a good way to go about this is to actually test this hypothesis. And a lot of you have heard that when Kevin and I talk about specifically social papers or like psychological papers, we're always just like, ah, they're just finding correlations between all this (laughs) stuff. Well, this really interesting study out of University of California, Riverside, actually experimentally tested an extroverted and an introverted sort of personality and the roles that play in someone's well-being or their happiness. Um, The title of this study is Experimental Manipulation of Extroverted and Introverted Behavior and Its Effects on Well-Being. I feel like I just said that in the sentence before. Did I repeat myself? No. (laughs) And this was actually just a study done with two authors, uh, Seth Margolis and uh, Sonia... Lumbrowski. And one thing I really like about this study is that they actually did an experiment. Yes, it's social, so there's a thousand other things that could be playing a role into it. But I think, you know, instead of just collecting metadata or just collecting that stuff and trying to make correlations out of it, I think experimentally testing something is always going to produce stronger, more robust. Huge. I couldn't possibly agree more. Results. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So, okay, these two people collected 131 participants. And these participants were very diverse in terms of uh, gender and um, age groups and sort of their ethnic backgrounds. And just to just give you some information on that, so 69% of them were female uh, the mean age was uh, 19.2, so they are a little bit younger um, demographics. Uh, 46% were Asian, 34% Latino, 8% uh, Caucasian, 5% Black, and 7% were other ethnicities. And essentially this group of 131 participants were not given any compensation for entering this study. And I think that's another key thing because if people are given incentives, they're already off the bat going to be like, oh, well, they want me to give the results they want to get. And that's just like a psychological thing because I even know like, um, did you get all those biodesign surveys to get that like money for like a thing? 
Well, so oh, yeah, I did. I filled out one. Did they send out the rest? They, they yeah, they sent out three. I think I only filled out two of them. Yeah. But they told me that they were giving me these gift cards, and off the bat, I was already like, well, now I have to be nice in all of these surveys. No, I didn't feel that way. Oh, oh. maybe that's why they didn't give me Maybe the that's why they didn't. Yeah, exactly. I was shitty to them the whole time. <laughs> See, right here, we did our own social experiment. Yeah. So, I, yes, I, I liked the fact that they didn't compensate these students for joining in on this study and I think that gives strength to their results. So essentially the entire group, everyone had to participate in either one week of being an extrovert and then one week of being an introvert or vice versa, one week of being an introvert and one week of being an extrovert. So every person was tested both a week of extrovertedness and a week of introvertedness. What yes. were their like instructions, or what did they have to do to fall into these categories behaviorally? Ex- yes, that I was moving on to that. Oh. Thank you. So they they had a much longer pamphlet about it, but they sort of came up with key words that were spread throughout the instructions that sort of would instruct a person to be either extroverted or introverted. So the adjectives, as they refer to it, or the extroverted adjectives that they spread out were talkative, assertive, and spontaneous. Mike, Mike, Mike. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah, honestly, like, yeah, those are things I would use to describe myself. Yeah. Um, and then... The introverted adjectives are deliberate, quiet, and reserved. Hey. I would say the same. You were giving a look, though. Which one do you feel like didn't describe you? No, I was just being very deliberate and quiet to put down my water bottle <laughs> without making noise that the mic would pick up. Exactly. And I would have just fucking slammed it down. Water bottle has to get down. So, I, you, I think... There was this other thing where they talked about how they didn't want to use certain or other adjectives because of Western norms and because most of their demographics were not from Western communities. Mm-hmm. They sort of shied away from that. But I think, you know, I talkative, assertive, spontaneous, extroverted, mm-hmm. deliberate, quiet and reserved introverted. And I don't think either of those on either, like those adjectives are negative in any way. Mm-hmm. You know, I would say like. I'm deliberately assertive. <laughs> I'm just an introvert. Yeah, they're not mutually exclusive. <laughs> no, they're not. Either, either group, either. Yeah. So, okay. They gave them the instructions. They also did various, like, uh, group assessments, you know, throughout this one week of that, and one, you know, one week of introverted and one week of introverted. And they essentially tackled three distinct questions, right? The first is, can extroverted or introverted behavior be manipulated over days rather than minutes? And that was one question that was based on previous studies and that a lot of them had experimentally tested whether or not this behavioral change can happen were only done within like a day frame, you know, with minutes of them interacting. But they wanted to see like, okay, well, like can these person actively change traits throughout the week? Just asking that, I would say the same. My God, I'm so different every week. It's ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> uh, grad school changed, uh, man. Exactly. So, the, before I uh, go on to their results, I just want to say that a lot of 
their results are based on questionnaires that they asked. Okay, so you know, take take that as you will. So first is can extrovert, uh, extroverted behavior be manipulated over a longer period than minutes? And yes, actually, like very significantly. Um, so participants, based on the self-reports from the participants, their extroverted or introverted behavior increase substantially during the course of the week. So if you were a week of an introverted, your introvertedness, your introversion, introversion got more introverted <laughs> as the week went on. Wow. But you would expect that too. You know, I yeah, feel as like you got more into the groove of utilizing or embodying those adjectives that they may be distinctions exactly. based on. And you're also like you experience different interactions and you learn how to behave in those interactions based on those adjectives you were told, you know, right? That was a beautiful sentence. So I have to Damn pat myself yeah. on my back. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, okay, kind of what we expected and they actually showed that. The other, and this sort of goes back to like, do one of these ways have a greater impact on a person's well-being? And right, do instructions to change to an extroverted behavior lead to changes in well-being? You know, regardless if it's good or bad. Like, does being an extrovert have a change in your well-being? Mm -hmm. And yes, participants did remark a growth in a positive effect over that uh, week of introversion, uh, or week of extroversion, as well as a decline in positive effect during that week of introversion. Was there a difference between the groups who were extroverts first, then introverts, versus being introverts first, then extroverts, like having that dichotomy? No, It was no. the same between all the groups? It, that, yeah. That's telling. That's yeah, telling. and I, yeah. that's very much like it's a behavior thing and a not like a... So the switching isn't yeah. what's causing it, it's... The behavior itself. It's exactly. Yeah, that was a good way to control for that... Um, Exactly. Those things can be convoluting, kind of. I mean, it was also a, an odd number. I also think the study size was pretty small. 131, like, is not that great. Like, where are you going to get a bunch of people? That's the that's the big limitation working with people, and why we love microbes because we can have a fucking billion of them in a test tube in a day. Do what we want, yeah. And exactly. So the last right, the last question they tried to act or act ask was. Do demographics affect, you know, do, does that affect a, a person's ability to have a positive correlation or a negative correlation based on this introverted or extrovertedness? And I think it was interesting. Okay. Mm -hmm. So participants who reported change in their extroverted behavior towards a positive growth, those that fell within to the Latino group had larger impacts. Wow. Yes. So out of the entire group, out of all 131, the 34% that were Latino showed a significantly greater... Not... Interesting. What was their p-value for significance for that? Oh, they were all like like 10 to the 7th. Negative oh. 7. So they were very... Shit. Yeah, okay. yeah. Like across the board, they were pretty good. Yeah. So... <clears throat> I thought that was interesting and that might have something to do. Okay, this is total opinion, 
But that might have something to do with the fact that it was in California. I know California has a very large Latino population. Mm-hmm. So maybe those who were switching to extrovertedness interacted with more people like them and thus, you know, were more welcomed into the environment. I don't know. I'm Interesting. <clears throat> that is, that's why doing studies with people is so hard to disentangle the cultural context in which all of these interactions are taking place. Exactly. Oh, it just makes yeah. my head hurt thinking about <laughs> trying to make sense and draw causality uh, between any of it, really. So I, I think that does, you know, even myself, I experienced that. Like, you know, when we go to, like, you know, one of the bars on Mills that are, you know, very, like, heteronormative sort of yeah. situations, I'm just like, oh, my God, this is, like, no fun whatsoever. But then I go out and, like, you know, Mel- Melrose, which is more, like, LGBTQ environment, I'm like, oh, my God, this is so much more fun. And I think, I don't know if this really has anything to do with extroverted or introvertedness, but I think this plays a role Dude, in, like, it's like a, it's like a, a club, other, uh, exactly, right? yeah. exactly, like, it, it's that safe space, not even a safe space, mm-hmm. but there's just people who experience life in a similar way that yeah. you do. Does and that just, prime you to be more extroverted than if you're in a group of people who I think it does. dealt with any of that shit? What have I done over the past, like, two weeks? Be really drunk. <laughs> <laughs> Interact with lots of people. Be drunk, yeah. <laughs> but that's not true. And, okay, so, as Microscope is known for, we like to close off with a very... something you could take home. And I think my take home that I want, I want Ke- I, Kevin's got, Kevin has his own. Yeah. I think mine is that for all you introverts that feel being introverted makes you happier, I would say just try and be slightly more extroverted. Because there are studies that show that being slightly more sociable will make you happier. Within reason, because like we're all poor and stressed, so yeah, you know, exactly. Honestly. Yeah, you gotta pick your pick your battles on how how to go about that exactly. Exactly. Yeah, and I'd say, oh, what's my take home for this week? Probably just when you are offered meat alternatives, be have an open mind, because um, what's happening now in that field is really hot and it's only gonna get better. At some points, I, I like the um, kind of going to borrow from the transhumanism uh, movement. Oh, what at a great word. Point, yeah, at some point with the uh, prosthetic limbs and like bionic eyes and ears and stuff, there will be not just um, prosthetics that can bring disabled people back to the point zero, but will actually give people enhanced powers. I think the same thing is going to happen. Enhanced power. I think the same thing is going to happen with meat, where if they keep perfecting the um, lab-grown meat, eventually lab-grown meat is going to be better than steak. And can we imagine a world? You think in terms of taste? In terms of or like nutrients? Oh, okay. Everything. I'm on board with all that. aspects of the steak and ribs and pork tenderloin and chicken tenders experiences. Better. On board. That is my bold prediction. That was like a, just a stop. Okay, so <laughs> thank you and enjoy. Do we have something coming out before the holidays? I don't know. What, what day is it? No. Yes, we don't? No. 
Enjoy your week. See you next time. Happy holidays. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to Microscope, brought to you by WISP. To learn more, join us on the web at wispmedia.com slash microscope. M-I-K-R-O-S-C-O-P-E. We'll see you next time.